According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs chapter 6 once again, and uh, almost complete with uh, verses 16 through 19, our uh, hatred lessons. We're dealing with the final one, the false witness, I'm sorry, the one who spreads strife among brothers the strife spreader, and how the strife spreader is the antithesis of God the Father. God the Father is the one who brings brothers together. He is the one who reconciles. He is the one who gathers the lost. And uh, the strife spreader does just the opposite. Uh, Through his slander and his lies and his evil and everything else, his whole objective is to drive people apart. And uh, so it is the pinnacle of uh, the six things, even seven, which are an abomination to him. And so that's what we're going to return to here this morning. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask God the Father to bless our time in his word. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing of studying to show ourselves approved. We thank you, Father, for the Proverbs and the joy that it is to, uh, to read this wisdom from the Old Testament, wisdom that is universal, Father, that's not uh, limited to the uh, stewardship of Israel or to the church age. Father, it, the, there are timeless principles for our daily application, and we thank you for it. We ask that we might be humble to receive the word implanted, and I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. out and to do this earlier here we go as we are in the outline we uh, reached main point four and without uh, breaking down the rest of this let me just start with that main point four as we were looking at hatred and so if you're keeping track and you're using your own outline this is where we are uh, dealing with the hatred the abominations of his soul it says that he hates Verse 16, there are six things which the Lord hates, which Yahweh hates, seven which are an abomination to his soul. And uh, the recognition that uh, this is not the antithesis of love, this is an expression of love, that he both loves and hates in his non-contradictory perfection. And I believe it's only flawed human philosophy that looks at love and hate as being mutually exclusive or being opposites or being, well, if you hate, then you obviously don't have enough love or or, uh, there's something wrong with you if you have any kind of hate. And that's not the biblical approach. God is the ultimate God of love. No shortage of passages there that we can turn to to, uh, to prove that or to demonstrate that. But based on that love, he also has hatred applications. And uh, plenty of passages there, including our section here today, where we are enumerating these six, even these seven things that are an abomination to his soul. And so it is a non-contradictory perfection. We moved on from there to talk about abomination, what abominations are all about. Not politically correct, not popular in our generation, but they are biblical. The things that are uh, an abhorrent to his soul, they are, he is revulsed by them. It is a revulsion that he wants to drive these abominations far from his presence. Talked about the poetry of the X and X plus one formula. In this uh, chapter, it's six and seven. Other passages of the Old Testament might be three and four, might be four and five. It, it really doesn't matter what the number is as long as the pattern holds. It is any number X and then one more beyond that X. And... Uh, just so happens in this passage, it's six and seven. But however the usage is used throughout the Old Testament, uh, when this formula is employed, the emphasis is always on that final item. The main point is he's leading up to that final item with the six earlier items, but that seventh one is the, is the point he's trying to drive home. That seventh point is the one of total emphasis. And that's what we see here with one who spreads strife among brothers. The strife spreader is the one that has the pinnacle of God's hatred. So when we look at these seven sins, we find that there's body parts involved, there are haughty eyes. The first five of these are all body parts as we work our way through. Uh, There's eyes, tongue, hands, heart, feet. So the first five of these are body parts. 
And then we get to the final two, the false witnesses and the strife spreaders. The false witness who utters lies. Now this almost seems like, or it does, seem like redundancy. It seems like it's a repetition. Because we had the tongue earlier, we had the lying tongue was the second item. And so why are we back to the lies again for item number six? All right, well, it's slightly different. Um, it includes the, the shekher vocabulary from the lying tongue, the tongue shekher that we looked at under point two. But beyond that, this is actually is engaged in a systematic deceit in a judicial proceeding. It's like the, the Ten Commandments in the Decalogue in Exodus chapter 20. It's thou shalt not bear false witness. The lying there is not just you know, the, the, the casual lying in personal life, okay? It's not just generic lying, but it is the lying under oath. It is the false witness in a, judici- a judicial proceeding whereby the, law, the lie becomes accepted as given truth because once it is submitted to the public record as sworn testimony, that is the truth judicially. That is the truth legally in a society, in a city, in a country, in a town, or wherever, all right? For example, it is judicially, factually true that O.J. Simpson is not a murderer, all right? Because he was acquitted in his trial. And based on the sworn testimony and based upon the, the evidence presented and based upon the verdict pronounced by the, by the jurors, legally speaking, judicially speaking, O.J. Simpson is an innocent man, Okay? Now, the reality of that, I'm skeptical, (laughs) but I will just simply let it go at that. I'm not omniscient. I don't know for a fact, but it sure seems to me that uh, that he's guilty as the day is long, all right? So the idea of the the, uh, false witness, this is actually undermining uh, justice, undermining governmental authority, and it's just a horrendous thing. And it goes back as a reflection to Satan's original fall, to Satan's original lies and, and the corruption of his judiciary in, on, the, uh, on the angelic earth. And then ultimately the final one are the strife spreaders. The spreading or the sending of strife. This is not only strife in your locality. This is strife now on a missionary basis. Strife that reaches out and spreads its influence as far as it can. And how many times did we see, for example, when we were looking at the uh, ministry of the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, those strife spreaders would chase him to the next town, to the next town, to the next town. They weren't content to simply drive him out of Iconium. They would chase him to Lystra and to Derby as well. And um, the activity there, the sending of strife. The emphasis being on the participle of shalach, the Hebrew verb that means to send or to spread. And it stresses the agent of the verb. All right, it's like in English when you add an er ending on something. Uh, a far, uh, if you farm, you are a farmer. If you teach, you are a teacher. If uh, you know, pick a verb and put an er on it, <laughs> right? And uh, and so you are a. Uh, it's it's stressing the one who does the activity. In this case, the one who s- spreads the strife, the one who sends the strife, and so the sending one uh, is the uh, is the one that has the the pinnacle of the, of the hatred here as far as God is concerned, all right? In other words, yes, he, it bothers our Lord when there is strife between brothers, and who does he target first and foremost? The one who has spread that strife, the agent of spreading that strife, okay? He has to be dealt with so as to remove the, uh, the influence between these brothers. Now, strife spreading is diametric, diametrically opposed to the work of God the Father in reconciling the world to himself. You know, why is strife so bad? <laughs> you know, I mean, strife, okay, I get it. We've got, you know, problems between people, but come on. I mean, is it really as bad as, you know, murder? Is it really as bad as, as um, you know, a, a child molester? Think of all the, the horrible things you can think of. Why does spreading strife reach the top of the list? Why is it the pinnacle of the list? Why isn't those mean, nasty, uh, you know, homosexuals or something? <laughs> Why isn't it those wicked, wicked, uh, you know, again, humanity and our finite thinking, we like to classify certain things and we get into our minds that these are worse than those. But when God enumerates his list of six and seven, uh, I notice that um, how many of these are, uh, well, we do have hands that shed innocent blood, so you do have the murder there. Um, but the fornicators, um, I, I just don't see, and the homosexuals and some of these other things, they're not on that list, all right? But spreading of, spri- uh, spreading of strife tops the list. 
And so that got us to consider, well, why would that be? What is it fundamentally about the nature of God that is under attack? And that's where I think the answer started to come clear. Because the, uh, the idea of lying is fundamentally an attack on the God of truth, that God himself is true. A murder is fundamentally an attack on the God of life, that God himself is life and the source of life. We, that's, in fact, that's the very basis by which capital punishment is given to humanity. That if you shed man's blood who's made in the image of God, then by man your blood must be shed. That the murderers are executed under the laws of capital punishment because it is a vengeance upon the attack against the very life of God. And so as we start to look at these six things, and then item number seven, we start to observe, well, haughty eyes. That's arrogance. That's uh, self-promotion. That's being puffed up. What's that? It's an attack on the essence of God. It's the very antithesis of who God is, who his son is, the humility of our Savior. And with all of these items here, I think what we're finding is that we're finding that these are the opposite of God's very nature himself. Almost an anti-essence box. If you want to create an anti-essence box for the, the antithesis of what God is. Okay? And so in considering then, well, the spreading of strife, How does that attack the essence of God? And I think this is what we conclude, that it is diametrically opposed to the work of God the Father in reconciling the world to himself. That our Father is the one that welcomes back the prodigal son. Okay, He's not the older brother that's all condemning and negative against that little brother, that's attacking that little brother, that's blaming that little brother for being a a scoundrel and wasting the the inheritance on, on harlots and all that. No, the older brother is the strife spreader. The father is the, is the one that reconciles, is the one that embraces. And, and I want to be clear on this. Reconciling and embracing does not excuse sin. Reconciling and embracing applies love to deal with the sin and then offers the forgiveness on the basis of that dealt with sin. Because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He's not excusing sin. And he's not recon- it's not a universalism. He's not reconciling those who reject Christ. Those who reject Christ die and go to hell. They spend eternity in the lake of fire. But it is the nature of the Father to reconcile the world to himself. And that's what we look at in John 17, 23, in 1 Timothy 2, 5. We can uh, kind of slow down our review now and pick up here. John 17, 23, and uh, 1 Timothy 2, 5. And we see the, the love of the Father here, and we see the unity that is part of the designed plan. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus is offering this to his Father. He says, Father, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. And so here in the church, especially the, the body of Christ that this previews, in the church we should have this unity. We shouldn't have the, the spreading of strife and the driving of people apart and so forth. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. As a matter of fact, the very unity we have in Christ and in the Father ought to be a testimony to this lost and dying world, (laughs) that we are something different, that we are not uh, of the things that are of this earth. So the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. That it's a unity that we have in Christ, in the Father, with one another, and it is available to anyone who wants to receive the gift of eternal life. We can preach this gospel to anyone because Christ died for their sins. And so we see the, uh, the principle there. 1 Timothy 2, 5. Another passage that speaks of reconciliation and, and the, the heart of the Father that that wants to, uh, to draw people to himself. There is one God. Well, let me back up. When we talk about uh, our God and Savior, why it is that we pray for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. When you pray for your country, what do you pray for? You're supposed to pray for your leaders. To what end? That the economy recover? Or uh, we have military victory? not saying those things are necessarily wrong, but this passage says, 
Pray for the political leadership so that we have a tranquil and quiet life, that the gospel can be preached. As it says here, tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And so uh, there you have it. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The benefit of having a peaceful and tranquil and quiet life is we have stability in our culture where we can, we can talk to people on the street about Jesus Christ and eternal life. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. See, the love of God doesn't just reach his arms out and start saving unbelievers against their will. He doesn't just reach his arms out and start loving sinners. See, the love of God that loves sinners sent his son to die on the cross and provided the basis to receive that eternal life. And those who receive his son receive eternal life. And so there you have it. Who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. So do you want to be uh, a reconciling one or do you want to be a strife spreading one? One of which is working on behalf of God the Father as his fellow worker. The other is working, uh, you know, in the opposite direction. He's serving the Antichrist. He's serving Satan, the counterfeit father and driving people away. Understand a sent one must be faithful and true to the one who sent him. And this applies to members of the church. You and I need to identify ourselves as sent ones. The very vocabulary here in Proverbs, 10, in Proverbs uh, 6 that we're looking at today comes back again in Proverbs 10, Proverbs 22, Proverbs 25, Proverbs 26. And again and again and again we have that verb that demonstrates the sending and the, the one who's doing the sending is being stressed, is being emphasized. And if somebody being sent is not pleasing to the one doing the sending, that's a problem, <laughs> okay? That's a problem. And I think it communicates, again, very well with what we're dealing with with the strife spreaders. It's not only that they're spreading strife. It's not only the damage being done in a local church. But the fact is those strife spreaders are pleasing to the one who sent them. They are adversaries serving the adversary. They are pleasing to him. And so that uh, moves this sin to the top of the charts for the father's abominations, for the father's uh, soul hatred. Okay? And I won't spend a lot of time on this slide because we did look at those verses previously. But let me just grab a sampling so that you see what we're dealing with. Proverbs uh, 10.26 Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one to those who sent him. Okay? In other words, it's not pleasant. It's irritating, it's frustrating, and it's, it's, uh, it's something you want to stop immediately, and you're not going to do it again. You know, if, if, if you send somebody uh, and you've entrusted them with a responsibility and they're lazy, they're, they're slugs about getting done what it is you expected them to get done, well, that's not pleasant. That's, that's like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. You talk about irritating and, and, and you know, you're not going to do that again. Who wants to do that again? You've got to be pleasing to the one who sent you. And uh, that's, that's just a principle that we see in, uh, in these Proverbs. Uh, 22, 21. You've got to give an answer to him who sent you. And uh, if you can't give an answer to him who sent you, then uh, what are you going to do? 25.13. Refreshing the soul of his masters, like the cold of snow in the time of harvest, is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. If you've done what it is that they've sent you to do, then it's a blessing. It is absolutely a blessing. Now, the best example we have of that, of course, is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, again and again and again. You've got all those verses in the Gospel of John. John 5.37, John 6.44, John 7.28, John 8, four times in that chapter. John 8, verse 16, 18, 26, and 27. Let's look at those in John chapter 8. Time and time again, we have the faithfulness of our Lord. And for three and a half years of his earthly ministry, 
he never once was magnifying himself. He was constantly describing the, the one who sent me. He was constantly revealing the Father. And so in all of these, John 5, John 6, yeah, okay, back up a little bit. I know I said let's start with John 8, but let's look at these other ones as well. They're so fruitful. John chapter 5. Plus, I miss our life of Christ study. <laughs> so any chance I get to uh, come back to the Gospels is, is, uh, is a good chance. So here he's dealing with these adversaries, these religious know-it-alls, and they don't even know God the Father. They don't have his word abiding in their heart. And so John 5, 37, he says, And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. And these religious leaders are not even saved, unregenerate. They have a gnosis, they have a knowledge, but his word is not abiding in their heart. Their hearts are still wicked. How can the pure word of God abide in the heart of the unbeliever? can't happen. Absolutely cannot happen. So there he is stressing, him who sent me, the Father who sent me, you do not believe him whom he sent. You do not believe him whom he sent. That's, uh, that's significant. All right, over to chapter 6 and verse 44. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless he who sent me, the Father who sent me, draws him. You see the heart of the Father that wants to reach out, that wants to draw, that wants to bring people to himself? Well, he wants to. But the, the plan that he's put into place in order to do that is on the basis of his Son, the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus Christ, he will not draw you in. All right? And I will raise him up on the last day. So there it is again, he who sent me. John seven twenty eight, he who sent me. Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. What an example of faithfulness. If, if you are a sent one, you want to be pleasing to the one who sent you. And Jesus is the pinnacle example of that, and we better be imitators of that as well. We better be imitators of that as well. Because the Father has now sent us. Think about what the Father did when He sent the Son into the world. He sent the Son into the world to reconcile the world to Himself. Now what has He done sending us? He's done what He did with Christ, multiplied again and again and again. Because we are Christ. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. The Father is in us. Everything that the Father did in the Son, First Advent, He's now doing in the body of Christ in the church age. Only not just in a monopresent limitation of one Galilean carpenter walking around uh, you know, Israel. Now he's all over the world in every born-again believer, in the body of Christ, reconciling the world to himself. If you understand the doctrine and make the application. Over to chapter 8. And this is, I, I like all these chapters, chapter 7 in particular, because the brothers have this great idea how Jesus can uh, expand his ministry, and they're not even saved. They think they can tell him how to, how to increase his popularity. <laughs> okay. Jesus didn't care about his popularity. He said, I'm not here to promote myself. And then in chapter 8, look at all these verses, 16, 18, 26, 29. And the contrast between him and the Pharisees, him and the opponents... So, um, anyway, they try to accuse him in verse 13. The Pharisees say to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus said, well, you know, I'm not doing that. But even if I did, <laughs> even if I did testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. So he's contrasting his approach with theirs. You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. Goes on to say, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Okay? Now, under Mosaic law, a single witness was not sufficient. You had to have a minimum of two, preferably three. 
and on the basis of two or three witnesses, then every fact is confirmed and a, you know, a death sentence can be issued down or other things could, could take place on the basis of two or three. And so now here's Jesus answering his critics saying, I'm not, you know, they accused him of testifying only about himself or from himself. The reason why they can level that accusation is because they don't know the Father. He has the witness of the Father. But they don't know him, they can't hear it. For I'm not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it's been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Well, I mean, how obvious can you get? How about the heavens open and a booming voice out of heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. <laughs> Any of the Pharisees get a, get a witness like that? No, of course not. All right, you get a little bit further down in the chapter, verses 26 and 29, we got some more issues here. Um, it just increases. I think the, the, the um, hostility increases throughout the chapter. Um, he's getting ready to depart. He says, I go away, you'll seek me, will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Um, he says, you're from below. That's verse 23. You are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Verse 25. And Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? <laughs> what has been my consistent message ever since the baptism of the River Jordan? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. Look how faithful he is to he who sent me. And they did not realize he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And look at the response. He was so faithful to teach the Father, it says in verse 30, and he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. There we have it. One final example of this, of Jesus and his faithfulness to he who sent me, comes in John 12, 49. Again, more Pharisees, more conflict. Talking about uh, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, how those who should see do not see, cannot see. Um, yet there was a remnant. I think verse 42, many even of the rulers believed in him. We know Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea by name. There were more. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And so even those that did accept him as their Messiah, they, uh, they were ashamed to say anything because of their fear of the, the, the approval of their peers there. So verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. If you ever think about it, when you're given the gospel... And we want to have the right object of our faith. We want to have the right object of our gospel. You must believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. Okay? But what does that mean to believe in Jesus Christ? When you are trusting in Jesus Christ for eternal life, trusting in Jesus Christ only has value. Why? Because what's behind that is the satisfaction that God the Father was satisfied by the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so fundamentally, when you're believing in Jesus Christ, you are literally also, in addition to that, trusting in the promise of God the Father that he who has the Son has life, he who does not have the Son shall not see life. Okay? So if you believe in me, you believe in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. So here's, I mean, it's just a, a powerful gospel message in this. Get down to verse 48 and 49. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Depart from me, I never knew you, right? The gospel is the only dividing issue. 
They're not going to go to hell because of their sins. They're going to go to hell because of this word that he spoke, this reconciling gospel message. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. So here he is again. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And there we have it, Doug. There we have it, okay? So he's faithful to the one who sent him. Now, in addition to all of these out of the Gospel of John, I threw in Romans 8, 3, just because I thought we might remember it from our Roman series. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. All right, and so here's God reconciling the world to himself and uh, what he did in sending the son. You've got to be faithful and true to the one who sent him. Now, that applies to Jesus, of course, but it applies also in our day and age. We've got an example to follow. Jesus Christ set that example for us to follow. This applies to members of the church as well. John 17, 18, John 20, 21, and 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. It applies to you and I as well. We must be faithful and true to the one who sent us because we also are sent ones. Did you know that? Do you know you're an apostle? Just in terms of the vocabulary of having been sent. The verb apostello, you have been apostelloed. Also the verb pimpo, you've been pimpoed. Both verbs. Two synonyms for sending and both of them apply to us. John 17, 18. We were here a moment ago in this high priestly prayer. We were looking a little bit lower down. But backing up now to this earlier portion of his prayer. Uh, verse 13. But now I come to you in these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. Understand that. When you stand for truth, you're not going to win popularity contests. All right, you're going to be hated by those that are conformed to this world. And they've got a way of looking at the universe that is upside down and backwards. They call good evil and evil good, and they hate you. And they say you're the hater. All right, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The day you got saved, you were delivered out of this domain and delivered in the kingdom of his beloved son. Notice, though, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So the day we get saved, we don't just immediately go to heaven. (laughs) But we do remain here as aliens and strangers, all right, like special forces soldiers behind enemy lines. And we are protected, protected by God the Father, sanctified by the truth of the Word of God. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So how do you set yourself apart? How do you keep yourself unstained by the world? You've got to be sanctified in the truth. And I find it heartbreaking how few born-again believers are true disciples of the word of God, sanctified in the truth. And and most Christians I know are just as worldly as the non-Christians I know because they're not sanctified in the truth. Of course, not preaching to people that are in church on a Wednesday morning, obviously. You're in the Word. You're in the Word. But how many born-again Christians are living in the Word of God? Do they reside there? Do they dwell there? Do they live there? Or do they visit occasionally? Okay? No, it's not about an occasional visit. It's about living there. So as you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. We are sent ones. So are we going to be vinegar in his teeth? Are we going to be smoke in his eyes? Okay. No, we are sent ones. We must be pleasing to the one who sent us. Over to John chapter 20 and verse 21. This is, uh, of course, on Resurrection Sunday, and some of the disciples were doubting. And um, 
in any event. He just they, They're up in this upper room. The doors are locked. The windows are shut. Everything's all sealed tight. Poof, he teleports in and says, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his sides. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. We are sent ones. We are sent ones. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 and 19. Here's some theology for you in the church age related to what the Father expects of us as sent ones. I love the structure of the New Testament. I love seeing the example our Savior set and the teaching that He gives His disciples and the the, the preview of the things to come. Remember, when Jesus was teaching, it, it, the church was still mystery. He can't fully unveil mystery doctrine. The church, the church is still mystery unveiled until Pentecost. But he gives some previews. He gives some anticipations. He gives them particularly in the upper room discourse, John 13 through 17. He's giving them previews of things that they will understand the moment they receive the Holy Spirit. And so we have the, the, the pattern of that that starts in the Gospels. Then you get to the Pauline epistles, and now we have a systematic development of every one of these concepts, all of these doctrines, everything that you and I need to operate in the body of Christ. And so here's the doctrine in 2 Corinthians 5 that really gives us the, 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 uh, the full understanding of what it means to be sent. As the Father sent me, so send I you. Well, what was the whole purpose there? As the Father sent me. What was the Father doing when Christ was here? So in 2 Corinthians 5, um, tempted to teach the whole chapter, <laughs> but this is because this is our walk by faith chapter. 5 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. How to be, uh, you know, to be in the world but not of the world. How to, how to be heavenly minded even when we're dealing with, with things here on earth. So um, verse 8 says, we are of good courage, I say, prefer rather to be absent from the body, be at home with the Lord. Absolutely. Trumpet sounds today. I am out of here. Well, you know, and I won't look back. I won't miss this place for a minute. And therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him day by day by day while I'm here on earth. I want to be pleasing to him. But when that day comes to call me home, absolutely pleasing to him. Get me there. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We're accountable for what we've done. Each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You've got one life to live, live it, and then go answer for what you've done. Okay? We didn't talk about this Sunday night, but this, is, this totally blows a hole in the, the reincarnation uh, demonism, right? I mean, to have an endless chain of do-overs and do-overs and do-overs and do-overs... Well, you did some bad stuff this life. You've got to come back as a monkey next time. Or, you know, you did some pretty good things. You can come back with a better lifestyle. No, reincarnation is just, it's, it's demonic and it's unbiblical. This passage here makes it clear. We're living our one life before the Lord and we answer for it when we get there. there so verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are manifest to God. We persuade men, but we're manifest to God. So how it is we're interacting with this fallen world, we're actually standing before the Father in His sight. So don't be afraid of those people. Don't be afraid of, well, they might think I'm stupid if I preach the gospel. Who cares what they think? You are manifest in the sight of God. Now, um, the love of Christ controls us in verse 14. He died for all so that we who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. There's unlimited atonement and there's the specific application to those who accept the free gift, those who live. Verse 16, therefore from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Now that's huge. This is saying Jesus Christ had a first advent ministry. He walked in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And during his earthly walk, yes, we recognized him according to the flesh, but no more. His earthly walk is complete. He died, he rose again in victory, and he ascended to be seated at the Father's right hand. And that is how we recognize him. 
in the flesh no longer, now in resurrected glory, seated at the right hand of the Father. And we now must start looking at one another the same way. We no longer look at one another and, and view anything on an earthly perspective. We look at one another and we see born-again believers in Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of Jesus Christ. Okay? And if you're looking at your brother that way, you're looking at your sister that way as uh, glorified, seated at the right hand of Jesus Christ, that makes it kind of tough to harbor mental attitude sin against him. <laughs> right? To be, have bitterness or a grudge or any kind of other ill will because you are not recognizing them any longer according to the flesh, but glorified with Christ in heaven at the right hand of Jesus Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. And this is what it is. We're, we're saved. We have eternal life. We're a new creation. I'm not a Gentile anymore. Uh, you know, Jews and Gentiles are now in Christ once they, uh, once they accept the gospel. Now, all these things are from God. That's the Father who reconciled us to himself through Christ. This is kind of the whole point of the whole message today. The, the heart of the Father that's reaching his arms out, that's reconciling the world to himself, he's doing that in Christ and through Christ. See? But he's still not done. When, when Jesus Christ ascended to the Father, was seated at the Father's right hand, was God then done reconciling the world to himself? No, he just got started. He just got started. So, he reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us now, entrusted to us, the ministry of reconciliation. All of us. You see any footnotes there? You see any exclusions? Want to read it in the Greek? You know, us is us. Okay? And who is us? The body of Christ. You and me, yeah. The body of Christ. Church age saints. And we have now the ministry of reconciliation. You know you're in the ministry, right? The day you get saved, you, you have this ministry. You are in the ministry. Yeah, we got Dan's ordination coming up next Friday on the 20th. But, and, and then once he's ordained and he's looking and maybe the Lord will open a uh, pulpit or he'll open a lampstand or whatever. He'll put him in, into, into a service or what have you. But don't think that just because he's going through all that, that the ministry is limited to ordained ministers. All right? <laughs> we all have this ministry entrusted to us, the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, and now it's spelled out. What is this ministry of reconciliation? How do I do this? Namely, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. During the whole earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, what was God the Father doing? He was in Christ. Okay? The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit provides the empowerment. The Holy Spirit provides the giftedness. The Holy Spirit obviously is at work, but who achieves the effects? The Father achieves the effects. The effects are the Father's business. So God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Who do you think is in Christ today? You and I are in Christ today, but guess what? The Father is in Christ today, in us today, accomplishing his good pleasure at work in and through us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so he's doing the same thing today that he did in the first advent of Jesus Christ. So back then he was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. See, because what was he doing? He was taking every human sin and laying it on Jesus Christ. Now he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. You know, in that first Advent ministry, Jesus was monopresent. Okay? He laid aside his omnipresence. He laid aside his omniscience, his omnipotence. He humbled himself so as to go from place to place and teach and, and do these things, to go to the cross. The Father, likewise, was monopresent in the sense that he was working through one Christ, one beloved Son in whom he was well pleased, but no longer. Now he's not just working through one son. Now he's working through all of us, sons and daughters, beloved children, in whom he's well pleased, abiding in us, reconciling the world to himself. So now he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. See the definition of it here in verse 20? 
as though God were making an appeal through us. He's doing the same thing He did with Jesus. He's in us, appealing to this lost and dying world. That's why we have to take up our cross, because Jesus took up His cross. So we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God the Father. All right? He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's our ministry of reconciliation. So, of course, this applies to members of the church. All right. You want to be a strife spreader? Or you want to pursue the ministry of reconciliation? <laughs> to me, it's, uh, it's the antithesis. And uh, one will be a fellow worker of the Father. The other will be the object of the seventh and pinnacle item that is an abomination to his soul that his soul hates if you insist on being a strife spreader, one who spreads strife among brothers. Which gets us to the last part of the chapter, main point five. The remainder of chapter six, as well as chapter seven, returns to the parental wisdom and monishment against soul-hunting harlotry. The remainder of chapter six returns to the parental wisdom and monishment against soul-hunting harlotry harlotry okay it's a return to a former topic but it's an intensification of that former topic so we'll be uh, detailing with this outlining it in proverbs 6 verses 20 through 35 it forms the remainder of chapter 6 and it forms the story that's told in chapter 7 and uh, because we again we'll begin chapter 7 with an admonishment and then a story 7.6 says, At the window of my house I looked out through my lattice and I saw among the naive a young man lacking sense. (laughs) Okay? And so we've got a knucklehead in uh, chapter 7. And that story is going to be told. That story is the illustration for the admonishment in chapter 7, for the admonishment in chapter 6. And really, it's the same message from chapter 5. It's the same message from chapter 4, chapter 3, these earlier messages against fornication, against harlotry, against adultery, against the the sexual immorality that has physical and spiritual damage that you will do to your soul. But it gets more and more pointed in chapter 6, talking about the hunters of souls. And what does it cost you when you're having your fun? Okay, What damage are you doing? What's the price you pay? And the actual cost is far beyond the price. That's what this chapter is making clear. And in some cases, uh, you know, you, you sow and you reap. Um, and in some cases, you reap and reap and reap and you reap for the rest of your life. What is sowed in the foolishness of your premarital youth or your unmarital youth or your extramarital darkness or whatever else. So it gets more and more pointed. All right. So let's get a quick start on it, and we'll see how far we get in the 12 minutes that remain, and then we'll come back to this topic next week. Um, You recall, though, that when we started chapter 6, it was a bit of a diversion. It was a bit of an aside. It wasn't all sex all the time. It kind of seemed like that in chapter 4 and 5. But when we got to chapter 6, it it transitioned, and we were talking about money. We were talking about being surety for your neighbor and being entangled in, in your neighbor's financial snares. Uh, we were talking about uh, debt and laziness and not working. Go to the anto sluggard and all the, the problems of poverty that you bring upon yourself by being a sluggard and uh, the nature of vagabonds. <laughs> we, we're dealing with that. The nature of the worthless person, the belial, the person that is absolutely worthless to society. They're not contributing anything to society. They are complete leeches on society. There I go again, vagabonds and Belials, and that's not politically correct anymore, but it is the Scripture. And so chapter 6 has really been a departure from some of the earlier admonishments. Now we're going back to the same admonishments again. It's back to sex. It's back to the things that will destroy your soul. And uh, it again begins with a my son admonishment. Verse 20, my son, observe the commandment of your father 
and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Does that sound familiar? It is redundant, and I'll point it out for you here in the notes. Uh, Verse 21, bind them continually on your heart, tie them around your neck. We've seen that before too. Verse 22, "When when you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. Sound redundant? Sound familiar? Something very similar has already been said in an earlier chapter of Proverbs. So why is he going back and saying it all over again? What's the, okay? Because you have to. If you're talking to a young person, uh, particularly a young person that's on the verge of of, uh, leaving your parental authority and stepping out in their own generational accountability, uh, that is the time that you've got to say it again and again and again and again and again. Nowadays we call them teenagers. That's kind of a modern invention, but um, we've got this uh, aspect of culture. Okay, back then, of course, they didn't call them teenagers, and back then they were married at fourteen or thirteen anyway. So that limits things. All right. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a light. Does that remind you of anything? Okay, Psalm one nineteen. And the reproofs for discipline are the way of life. Reproofs for discipline are the way of life. If you don't like discipline, that's a problem. And how many of these young adults, they're on the verge of, and, it, and I get it, it's an awkward time. I get it. You're, you know, you're, you're not a kid anymore, although sometimes you have your moments, Okay. Sometimes there's still a part of your mind that is still a child's mind that hasn't yet fully abandoned that. But you're in that awkward in-between stage and now you've got, you're starting to get not only adult body um, shapes and, and, and physical changes, but then mental changes. You're starting to think in terms you never thought of as a child. Okay, Girls used to be gross. Now girls are, hmm, wait a minute. <laughs> Seems to be kind of interesting there. I want to learn more. And, and so it's not just bodies changing, thought processes are changing, th- uh, and the, the soul is growing into this capacity. And along with that awkward stage comes the pushing of boundaries, the pushing of borders, the, the, the stretching of, of, of wings to say, well, what do I get away with? And in some cases, a resentment of discipline, a resentment of authority. And that has to be dealt with. That has to, the parents have to get a handle on that and train that and observe that because if you resent the parental authority, what are you going to do as an adult? Okay, When you're under the authority of God Himself, under the authority of the Word of God. See, when, when you leave home, it's not just no more authority. <laughs> it's a whole different kind of authority. You are in the hands of God. You are under the authority of the Word of God. Ideally. Okay, at least we hope so. Because if not, if you're an authority to yourself, or you're out there living in the world, and that's uh, that's horrendous. No, reproofs for discipline are the way of life. They are the way of life. And if you're a rebel against your parents, what what are you going to be as an adult? Okay, if a, if a young girl can't obey her father, what's she going to do with her husband? And uh, different aspects there. Same thing with a young man. What's he going to do with a wife? How's he going to handle his adult responsibility? If, he, if he's going to be a rebel against his earthly father, what's he going to do with his heavenly father when he's standing in his own generation? No, reproofs for discipline are the way of life. Why do you think it's a light and a lamp? What's the whole purpose of lighting this stuff up? To expose what is displeasing in God's sight. All things are open and made bare. So we'll talk about that. That's coming up. Um, so this it, it's, it's a beautiful time. I mean, it's yeah, it's awkward, and it's fearful, and it's horrible, but it's great at the same time because you're watching a young person about to step forward into their own into their own generation, and I, and I fully accept that generational accountability. And uh, David, when he served the purpose of God in his generation, he breathed his last. And he was buried and gathered to his fathers. Okay, that's a that's a uh, biblical principle here. All right, so we start with this. This admonishment begins with a reintroduction. It's almost like if you've taken a long side trip and you're going to come back to an original topic, 
maybe you need to kind of reintroduce that. You need to get the conversation back on track. And that's what uh, Solomon is doing here. Or what, yes, as he, as he composes this, returning back now to the previously introduced topic. This admonishment begins with a reintroduction that employs familiar expressions from previous admonishments. And so he's freely borrowing the language from these earlier messages. In Proverbs 6.20, he's freely borrowing from, from uh, 1.8. Okay? That's why I put those parallel lines in there. Proverbs 6.20 is parallel to Proverbs 1.8. And the statement about observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother, that was how uh, chapter 1 launched the, uh, the exhortation there. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Both sides of the uh, parental design. Okay? And of course, I totally reject the world's philosophy that says, oh, you can have two mommies or you can have two daddies and they're just as valid as one mother, one father in the uh, stability of God's design for marriage. All right? You need both. They each contribute towards the upbringing of that generation, of that child. And uh, anyway, don't get me off on that. That's a whole topic unto itself. But we... um, we need to have both. And we need to exhibit both in raising our, our children in the church, in raising our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Our children cannot be raised with a sense that, well, the church and the Bible, that's just kind of that's kind of women's stuff. That's kind of feminine. That's kind of, uh, yeah, you know, mom likes church and God and the Bible and that kind of stuff. Dad, eh, you know, that's, that's, that's for women. All right. They've got to see both. They've got to see that, no, Christianity is not feminized. I mean, it's been feminized, sadly. But by design, the Word of God is not feminine. It has both masculine and feminine doctrines, and they're portrayed in the father and the mother roles. And the children have to be grounded in that. All right, 621. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. Find what you can find to memorize them. If it's scripture, memory, melodies, or whatever it is, sing a song, write a note, paint a picture, tie a string on your finger, whatever it takes to remind you. If you want to put Bible verses, I mean, the Jews would put, uh, you know, they would braid their uh, sideburns in these little braids, and they would put little verses in there. Just, you know, they put uh, different phylacteries on their, on their uh, dangles and bangles, <laughs> okay, on the, the outfits. Bind them continually on your heart, tie them around your neck. Well, we had that earlier in chapter 3 and verse 3. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Keep these principles vivid. Keep them ever before you. you know, if you find that you can, uh, you can spout off baseball statistics at the drop of a hat, but you can't spout Bible verses at the drop of a hat, then maybe there's a a priority maladjustment that needs to be uh, remedied. And I'm thankful I've lost a lot of my old wood hand stubble that I can let all that stuff go and not even think about it. Chapter 6 and verse 22, When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. Now this is slightly expanded from the earlier form. Uh, Previously, we've had this in a couple of different places. Uh, Chapter 211 talked about what the Word of God will do when you take it in. The fact is that when you're learning doctrine, it's more than just learning facts or earthly information. I can learn that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, and what have I learned? I've learned a date and an event. And I know that as an aspect of gnosis, as knowledge, but there's no power in that. It's not the Word of God. It's not the living and abiding Word of God. It's not the power of God unto salvation. And it's not sitting, dwelling richly in my soul so that it can spring forth to bear fruit, so that it can guard me and watch over me, as Proverbs 2.11 says, or Proverbs 2.10 says, wisdom will enter your heart, knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Think about the effect that the Word of God has as it's living in there, Okay? Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things. 
And so the power of the living and abiding Word of God, when you internalize it, when you digest it, when it dwells richly within you, right? Of all the things you want to dwell richly in you, the Word of God is tops on the list. Well, there's more. Chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. The effects that the Word of God has. But I'm out of time. So we'll come back to this. We'll talk about the light and the lamp. We'll talk about the... uh, Soul hunters, let me give you a clue. Uh, Verse 26, on an account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. I had to ask Sharon, I said, how much does a loaf of bread cost? (laughs) And she said, the good stuff or the cheap stuff, the cheap stuff we buy. (laughs) Well, give me a spectrum, you know. Um, It's not good. And an adulteress hunts for the precious life or the precious nephesh, the precious soul. And so they're on the hunt, all right? Don't be the victim. Don't be the victim, because the price you pay, it may seem cheap. Man, a loaf of bread, that's nothing. But what will the man give if he has lost his soul to gain the whole world? How do you put a price tag on that? All right, Father, there's warnings coming up, and I pray that we would pay heed. I thank you for this book. I thank you for this chapter. And I thank you for these students and their diligence to study to show themselves approved. I pray that they would do more than just accumulate facts and information, but let the word dwell richly within each one of us, Father, that it might indeed achieve everything for which you sent it. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.